This is Taiwan Bound, the English language podcast of Tel Aviv University. Please welcome your host, Ido Aroni, Tel Aviv University's graduate, member of the Board of Governors, lecturer, writer, and veteran diplomat. Welcome. Welcome to another episode of Tau Unbound. I'm Ido Aharoni. I'm your host, and I'm uh, very happy to um, host in our studio uh, Dean Professor Noam Elias, who's the Dean of the School of Engineering. It's one of the best schools in the country, if not in the world. And uh, first of all, thank you for being here with us. Thank you. It's such a pleasure. It's a pleasure to have you. And um, before we, we go into, you know, discussing your work and your faculty and your academic career, I know that you have a very interesting story. You know, a lot of people that are watching this and listening to us on the various platforms know that Israel is an immigrant society, but it's very rare that we meet someone who can say, my family has been here for ages. which is your case. Tell us about your family. Thank you. So uh, I was born in 1970, a generation Israeli. Uh, to the, my parents were uh, uh, Mordechai Yakubovic, who was the sportsman of Metrorot, Israel's water company. Uh, and my mother uh, was born to the Kaufman Uh, family at the time and uh, I'm F generation from her side so the roots of my family in Israel are the students of the Rabbi Elia Ben Salomon Zalman known as the Vilna Gaon uh, in 1782 the Gaon started on a trip to land of Israel with Rabbi Dan of Shlov and some other students but for unknown reasons uh, he did not get beyond Konitz Bird in Germany uh, in the early 19th century around 1880 Uh, 1808-1809, three groups of his uh, disciples, uh, uh, known as Prushim, due to how they isolated themselves from uh, the worldly concerns to study Torah, made their way to what was then Ottoman uh, Palestine. The yeah, and, and so, so you say, so the, the great uh, Gaon Vilna, which we say the genius of Vilna, and he's known as the Vilna's genius because he was his vast knowledge of the Jewish practice and the Jewish tradition and and his teachings are still relevant until this very day. So your family um, were descendants of, of him. He made an attempt to come to the Holy Land in late 18th century and for unknown reason he never really, Uh, made it but his disciples did and cool. your family settled in in the land of Israel in 1808 yes and where did they settle what part of Israel so they settled uh, at the Sefad at the time they could uh, Tzafed, they at the time Ashkenazi Jews could not settle in Jerusalem uh, the Muslims would not let it be and uh, only later uh, uh, no, I know that uh, the family of uh, Israel's former president Ruven Rivlin came in 1809 are you related to yes. his family yes the Rivlins yes so one of, we have several branches of the family who are, who are known in Israel and uh, abroad one of them is the Rivlin another one is the Slonim uh, we have the Gavrieli if you know the shop the uh, shoes shop in Haifa yes uh, of course and you also mentioned I think before we started the broadcast that somehow the Milchen family is related to your family yes so uh, uh, Milchen uh, is the uh, son uh, is the son of Gabrieli 
אוקיי? And these also have generation like myself. Amazing. And so is there any way for your family to, to do you have gatherings like um, every few years, like many, many large families have in Israel? So unfortunately, not really. I know that some of the branches uh, uh, do have, and they themselves uh, fill the Binyane Aruma in Jerusalem. Wow, so that's a big 4,000-seat uh, uh, auditorium. So that's a big event. Yes. It's and a big I, tribe. I can say that I, I have nephews and nieces that they already have children. So we already have in our branch, branch 10th generation in Israel. Uh, I, sh- I would also like to note Joseph uh, Schwartz, was the, f- the first one who wrote Dvot Aretz, uh, uh, which is considered one of the first uh, books to study the geography and uh, inhabitants of Israel. Wow, so you come from a, such an impressive line of, of people that really not only came here early, but also made a real contribution to the strength of the economy, to the strength of the academic. Uh, and, you're, and you're continuing in that tradition, right? So you're now the dean of the School of Engineering at Tel Aviv University, a central university in Israel, central university to the region. And obviously, the future of Israel is very much dependent on upon the success of Israel's engineers. We'll talk about that in a second. But before we go in there, before we go there, tell us a bit about your academic background. Where were you educated? Okay, so I will, I will say just uh, one, uh, two other comments before we move to this. So first we are the Faculty of Engineering, not the School of Engineering. Engineering. And the second one, which is interesting, the, the Churba Synagogue in uh, Jerusalem we talked about. So some of these uh, students uh, of Gaon uh, Vilna uh, were uh, responsible for uh, uh, its rehabilitation. And uh, the architect that was uh, chosen after the Six Days War was uh, Louis Kahn. And uh, interestingly, this is the same uh, well-known architect, uh, was born in Estonia, but this American uh, worked in Philadelphia. And the reason that I mentioned this, because one of the buildings of our faculty, the older one, the Wolfson Building for Mechanical Engineering, was also designed uh, by the same architect, Louis Kahn. And I I think that in our preparation to this podcast, uh, we spoke on the phone about Louis Kahn. Unfortunately, Louis Kahn never made it to, um, to Israel. He died at Penn Station um, in 1972, but he was commissioned by Teddy Kolek to uh, design the, um, the reconstruction of the ruin. The ruin is the English word for Chulva. Chulva was a, like a nickname that was given to this ruin synagogue, the ruin. And, um, and, and of course, he sent the, the, the plans for the design of the original building of the Faculty of Engineering. And unfortunately, it was built uh, the, uh, the, uh, you know, the other way around uh, with, the, with the windows facing east rather west. Uh, and so, uh, but, <laughs> but that's, a, uh, that's a, by the way, recently, I must tell you, Noam, that I was in New York and I met a very well-known American architect who was many, many years ago an assistant to Louis Kahn. And I told him about the story of the Faculty of Engineering, and he didn't know about it. And he told me, I thought I knew every building designed by Louis Kahn, and now you're telling me something I did not know. And I Googled it up, and I showed him on my phone. I said, here, you see, I'm telling you the truth. 
And I heard this story from um, a, an architect who uh, taught here, or maybe still is teaching here, Hillel Shoken, who told me this story. And actually, we took a, a group of writers to the building. This is, I'm talking about October of 2004. So now you're the dean of the Faculty of Engineering. And tell us about your own education. Where were you educated? I know you were born in Ramat Gan, which is a suburb of Tel Aviv. What made you, um, what triggered your curiosity about engineering? So actually, uh, uh, close to the end of my high school, I was sure that I'm going to be a pianist. And that was, uh, and we'll have a pianist career. I even started preparing the for a, a competition on this, and I thought that I will serve in the army, in the army as a musician. Uh, but then some events happened that changed my mind, and I decided that I would go to the academic reserve. Uh, initially, I thought about law, but quickly uh, they explained to me that I should go to engineering. So you, you, you were a member of the program known as Atuda? Yes. So Atuda, to those of us uh, who don't understand the word in Hebrew, means... Um, military, the army is identifying talented youth and is preparing them based on the army's needs um, and for a very long service. So I think Atuda was at least seven years, right? At the time, I was supposed to, to serve for three plus three, six years. Six years, years. okay. So, but so you, you were basically recruited because you were such a young, bright uh, person, you were recruited by the army. The army identified you as a potential, and so they they were the ones who introduced you to the world of engineering. Yes, in a sense, yes. So I studied materials engineering, uh, my BSc. Then I served at the Israel Air Force in the materials and failure analysis labs in Abu Kabir in uh, Jaffa. At the time, it, the unit was called the Yav Matayim Shloshim, Engineering and, Inspe and Inspection Unit. That's the abbreviation. And uh, after that, uh, I asked to uh, leave the army before the six years to do direct uh, threat to PhD, which I did again at Bedurion University. Uh, in parallel, I started also doing and completed my MBA because at the time I didn't think that I would go to academia. I thought maybe I would go to industry. Then I went as a Fulbright and Rothschild scholar uh, to MIT, to the, the Department of Material Science and Engineering, specifically to the Corrosion Lab. And uh, then in 2001, uh, I returned to Israel as a faculty here at Tel Aviv University, first in the Department of uh, Solid Mechanics, Materials and Systems, uh, that uh, later became part of the School of Mechanical Engineering as we know it today. And later in 2013, after I returned from one year sabbatical at Northwestern University, uh, uh, I moved to the Material Science and Engineering Department, which I founded. Now, obviously, when you're talking about the Air Force, the question of the strength of materials is critical because you have to, you know, rely on on an airplane and 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 the and the engine and the materials. So, how advanced the field is today? When you compare what you knew back then, when you started, I'm assuming it was in the 1980s, until today. What have changed in terms of what we know about materials? 
So I think first several paradigms uh, with respect to failure analysis in the army at the time. For instance, uh, at the time in the US, they uh, almost didn't do really failure analysis because they had enough money just to replace the failed parts. We didn't have this privilege in Israel and therefore we did failure analysis for all of them. And actually at the time we were uh, leading the failure analysis area compared to the to the Americans. I recalled in, the, in one of the accidents of F-16 that in which I was involved at the time, I reported some kind of crack at the time the whole uh, fleet of the, the F-16s in Israel uh, was grounded. And uh, I recall that uh, Prime Minister Rabin, they told me the following day that Prime Minister Rabin was astonished by the crack that you detected. And I thought to them myself at the time, why the hell would the Prime Minister uh, be uh, 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 updated and think about, you know, the length of credits in materials? Later, uh, many years later in 2010, I realized when this project was selected as having the third uh, highest impact on the Israel Air Force, the materials area of the Israel Air Force in 16 years at the time, 60 years at the time uh, of existence. I think what has uh, changed since then, for instance, we have, uh, we, are, uh, we keep accumulating knowledge about failure mechanisms, also in different materials. New materials are routinely uh, included or introduced, which also uh, implies that we need to learn the mechanical behavior and the failure modes, which are not necessarily uh, identical to those of other materials. Also in recent years, uh, in, uh, as part of the Industry 4.0, uh, the fourth industrial revolution, uh, additive manufacturing of uh, polymers, of metals, of ceramics, composites, uh, as important role. And these materials, because of the different uh, processing routes and the different microstructures that relate uh, to this processing, have different properties and also sometimes fail in a different manner than the classical materials. So uh, this is one uh, additional change. And we should also mention the uh, new analytical tools with high resolution and characterization tools that we have today uh, compared to what we had at the time. So this allows us to look at materials at high resolution down to the atomic scale uh, to, the, uh, to an extent which we didn't have at the time. Now, nanotechnology, and I'm by no means an expert on this, I understand that nanotechnology, one of the potential applications is that it will allow us to rearrange or re-engineer the material at the most basic level or the molecular level. And do you see that, so first of all, if you can share with us some of the practical applications of it, and how long will it take before humanity will be able to actually benefit from it on a, on a scale? So I think in general, we are in the world, we use the, uh, the term uh, convergent engineering, for instance, uh, nowadays, uh, beyond materials, uh, science and engineering. Uh, so I think that uh, uh, nanotechnology, one component of it of, is, of course, nanomaterials. So we produce materials that uh, uh, controlling, for instance, trying to mimic, for instance, molecules and tissues and organs of the human body. And there is a rapid uh, improvements or uh, progress in this area. So depending, I think, on the applications, there are certain cases where it looks like we are already at the stage of promising uh, results. And of course, others like uh, Tel Aviv University, there was Professor Talvir from the Faculty of Life Sciences uh, printed, 3D printed 
part of uh, 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 arts tissue. So in that regard, it will take years before it will be really implanted uh, in humans, but this is still a significant breakthrough. But talking about materials, so nanotechnology will allow us to produce materials that will be resilient, um, what, a thousand times more than they are now, 500 times more than they are now? So this would be one aspect. In general, as you go down to the atomic scale or near atomic scale, uh, the, you can reach uh, a me a mechanical properties, for instance, uh, a strength uh, that you cannot uh, reach with the classical micro crystalline materials, for instance. I think that nanotechnology will allow us to manipulate the materials, even uh, in parts, even locally, to impart properties locally, it's atomic, uh, for instance, local release, and this you don't need molecules, but local release of, uh, of drugs, uh, for instance, or biological matter, where, where you want it. Uh, we use it, for instance, carriers for drugs, these nanocarriers for drugs, this is already used. Uh, now, let's use your our imagination, right? So you work for the Israeli Air Force. Imagine if you could uh, design a an airplane that is built of a material that was manipulated, as you described. What kind of airplane would, let's use our imagination, what kind of an airplane would that be in terms of its resilience? So we could get uh, structures with uh, higher hardness, higher strength. It could be stronger in fatigue, for instance, uh, which is very relevant to the aircraft industry uh, and aircraft applications. Uh, we could uh, impart uh, locally a, a specific signaling, for instance, for the, to be able to detect uh, by far means uh, and so on. And, uh, and one example that I can give uh, from recent uh, area here at Tel Aviv University, I'm very proud uh, that in the Faculty of Engineering, we have a center for nanosatellites. And uh, I can say uh, confidently that uh, we are the leading in Israel in this area. Uh, Tel Aviv University launched recently the third nanosatellite, we call it Tau Set 3, uh, to space. Uh, so this is the third one in two years. And the reason that I mentioned this with respect to the nano, for instance, is that uh, this specific one uh, uh, is expected to pave the way to the area of uh, quantum communication, which is important, for instance, for encryption and so on. Uh, there are other tests, of course, that are installed on this kind of uh, nanosatellites. By the way, about the nanosatellite, I must say, as someone who uh, was there the day it was launched, that what's amazing about it is this was a project of the students, by the students and produced by the students. I mean, it was amazing to see, and the students were from all over the world. So tell us about the faculty. Uh, how big is it? So our faculty uh, is, uh, we have approximately uh, 4,700 uh, students, uh, approximately 1,300 of them are uh, MSc and PhD students. Uh, we have five academic units historically, uh, evolving uh, over time. So the oldest one is the mechanical engineering. Uh, next followed the School of Electrical Engineering, which is the largest by far in uh, engineering, almost half of the faculty in terms of students and faculty. Uh, we have a department of industrial engineering. We have department of biomedical engineering. 
and we have the Department of Material Science and Engineering. We also have some uh, uh, multidisciplinary uh, or interdisciplinary uh, programs such as systems engineering or uh, uh, biomechanics uh, with uh, mechanical engineering. We also have some joint programs, for instance, with exact sciences like material science and engineering and chemistry or electrical engineering and physics and so on. So all in all, you would say that Tel Aviv University alone we have close to 5,000 students, including PhD, advanced degrees. How many students would you say we have in the whole country? So we have uh, more than 20,000 alumni. We are very proud uh, of them. For instance, uh, a few years ago, the Jerusalem, the Jerusalem Post picked up the uh, most significant innovations in Israel in 70 years. So number one on the list, for instance, was the Iron Dome. So the Iron Dome was uh, the developed or led, the development was led by Dr. Danny Gold, who did his BSc, MSc, and PhD in our faculty in electrical engineering. Yes, I had the privilege of uh, meeting with him in New York when I when I served in New York as um, Consul General. What a what a bright person he is. Um, so, are you? Um, uh, are you also concerned, like many people, that we don't have enough engineers in Israel? Yeah, I, I, on one end I'm concerned, on the other end we will need some uh, more resources and space and so on to, to, be able, to be able to follow the demand from the industry. One of the items on my agenda, for instance, is uh, strengthening the ecosystem here. We want to be leaders in terms of ecosystem, bringing to here industry and philanthropic uh, uh, bodies and government bodies and our alumni to bring them closer and more closely interact with them. Uh, so you you would like to see more interface with government and industry on campus. Yes. So if you can describe the kind of uh, partnership or initiative that that you'd like to see, uh, because I'm assuming that many of our listeners and and, and viewers uh, are interested in in learning how can they can be part of what you're doing. So one example that I can give is, for instance, Broadcom, Broadcom company. So they constructed the, the first Broadcom building here on campus with the university and engineering. Uh, so part of it is occupied by faculty from uh, engineering. The other part is by the Broadcom people. And the idea in this case is to, bring the, to uh, enhance interaction between Broadcom and our researchers and students for R&D. A second Broadcom building, we call it uh, Engineering and Industry, uh, it will soon be uh, start be, uh, to be under construction. We expect it to be funded in about two years from now. And in that case, for instance, some floors are supposed to be occupied by startup companies, mainly of our uh, alumni. Okay, So this is one aspect. Other aspects, we are, for instance, I was recently approached that we have a problem in the microelectronics industry. You know, this is more than seven million dollars uh, uh, market at the moment, and uh, we also what happened in the crisis due to the Russian Ukraine. A war uh, where some of the supplies of the chips, for instance, uh, were terminated. So this is a concern in the U.S., but this should be also a concern here. So now we recently recruited a new faculty to electrical engineering who is very relevant to this area. And now we are uh, working with uh, some 
partners from industry of potentially establishing together new research labs, R&D labs, uh, bringing students and also bringing some companies because one of the problems of Israel in recent years, because the entrance barrier is very high, it, it requires quite a bit of money uh, to get into this business. Uh, we don't see uh, many young uh, companies. So we think that this partnership between academia and the industry could make the could lower the, the barrier for these companies and by this we could contribute to this very important uh, area so what you're proposing the the industry is basically a win-win situation you win because you get uh, your students access to the market through the companies and this experience is priceless right it's in, invaluable they win because they get access to the best talent there is, right? So it's a win-win situation. Correct. So I, I'm a great believer in win-win situation in, any, in, in all cases. There is another opportunity for, uh, of a win-win here because, for instance, we want to bring more uh, teachers to our courses who come from industry with practical experience. We want to open uh, the door to more faculty going and doing sabbaticals in industry. So by this, we will have also a knowledge exchange and uh, strengthen the interaction. And I can tell you that now we have started the new project in engineering, which I lead, uh, uh, defining the mission, the vision, and the strategic plan of the faculty. And one of the uh, round tables that will be there was, will be the relations with industry and society. This is another aspect which we have not touched yet, which is very important, uh, I believe. Uh, so for this round table on the relations with industry, I would like to see representatives of companies that uh, will uh, share with us their thoughts right. about the new curriculum because now uh, worldwide it is agreed that the toolkits that the young students uh, need nowadays is are very different from what we needed. Right. So we want to make our degrees as relevant as possible to the current state in uh, industry. Now let me ask you a question about uh, you know recently PitchBook which is a an organization that ranks universities uh, released um, the the most recent index that ranks Tel Aviv University at number seven in the world in terms of the number of entrepreneurs that came out of the university and the amount of money that they were able to raise. And of, obviously, many of them came from your faculty. Some of them came from business school. Some of them came from life sciences, exact sciences. Question is, to what extent do you feel uh, the collaboration with other faculties in the university and if there if there's anything that you'd like to see different in the future and um and and as a follow-up question to that um where would you like to see the faculty down the road five ten years from now that's a fantastic question so uh, I personally think that uh, one of the great uh, advantages of a university like Tel Aviv University, where you have nine different faculties, it is very multidisciplinary, and uh, we have not taken advantage of it uh, to date to the extent that we can, uh, is uh, indeed increasing the collaboration between faculty. So for instance, I can give you one example. I had a, a medical doctor, an orthopedist, who did this basic research uh, project in my lab in material science 
an engineering. So, and we, are, we have people, we have joint hackathons for students in medicine and in engineering. We have a course in biomedical engineering, for instance, where our, our students uh, develop uh, uh, products for the people with disabilities, for instance. And this is very important. Again, our role in society uh, is important. So, obviously, with uh, Faculty of Medicine is one example, but also with the Faculty of Life Sciences, we have different uh, uh, interactions in which to expand the collaboration between. We already have several at the research uh, level, but we also have a, a very nice uh, undergraduate uh, program of engineering and humanities. Uh, so this interaction, I think, is very important for both sides. Uh, it enriches our students, for instance, with uh, uh, capabilities to express themselves, you know, and to think beyond uh, outside the box of engineering. We are now discussing the new potential collaboration with the Faculty of Arts, and the material science and engineering, uh, etc. And now, of course, I didn't mention uh, uh, the faculty of uh, uh, business, as you mentioned, the pitch book. So we think that if we, by combining uh, programs of uh, uh, engineering and uh, business, we could uh, quickly get into the top 10 in the world with specific, in the specific area of programs. The, their faculty is already ranked, if I'm not mistaken, number 13. So we think that if we add to it now also the engineering part, we um, have a great potential there. What about the School of Music? So uh, this should be also interesting, as you as you know, there are, for instance, materials in music. There are different aspects. I was also I also have in mind materials in arts, uh, which something that I saw also at MIT at the time. I was engaged, for instance, in archaeometallurgy and this uh, in our metal, uh, so in archaeology. There are uh, collaborations uh, with uh, uh, in the area of construction, for instance, smart, smart buildings. We have collaboration of people from mechanical engineering, sensors and so on, from also from electrical engineering, uh, etc. So, so the world is really multidisciplinary nowadays. Absolutely. And this is, uh, I mean, you're, you're, my, my mind is working very fast after this uh, because what you did, you outlined so many potential interdisciplinary collaborations it's really um, limitless right and one last question because we're running out of time and I was very curious about your background as a pianist do you still play the piano every once in a while unfortunately not I we don't have enough time to tell the old story but uh, when I tried to return to piano there were several events that made me some trauma one of them my teacher at the time she was the uh, you know Moti Dichne yes of so, course yes. the musician so she she was Dora Dichne the, the same family so she passed away due and uh, not my class but uh, uh, another one and we had problem with the piano in my mother's place that uh, uh, she lives in a penthouse and water uh, dropped from up to, uh, from the top and quite uh, damaged the piano and after several events like this I said okay God doesn't want me to play the piano and uh, it, it's difficult for me uh, but, but, but I enjoy concerts I but you, you enjoy listening to music of course, of course. and this your, your style of music is classical 
Yes, uh, classical, some jazz. Actually, by coincidence, when I did my uh, postdoc at MIT, uh, I got acquainted with one of the richest Jewish families there. Just because we went together to a concert, by coincidence, I sat near them. They somehow recognized that I'm probably Israeli, they suspected. This is an elder couple. And uh, this was a Yo-Yo Ma concert. Oh, wow. So they noticed my uh, body language. And afterwards, they started they asking me questions about my origin and so on. And they were so happy to learn that uh, I was Israeli. And we became like a family. So, yeah, this is an example where music brings people. Absolutely. Uh, and, and by the way, next time you're going to New England, there's, uh, of course, the New England Conservatory, where my good friend Henkus Netsky is one of the... Uh, the world's leading experts on Jewish music. So next time you go to Boston, let me know. I'll introduce you to Henkus Netsky. Sure, and, I will enjoy it. And on this happy note, I'd like to conclude our great conversation. It was such a pleasure. For me as and well. Thank you for everything that you do. And to our listeners and viewers, it's uh, good to be with you. Until our next episode, be well. Bye-bye. Thank you.